how do we stop this? I said, you want to know how you stop this? You close the border. You give me a law that says if you sell that drug and you kill somebody, I can charge you with homicide. When you think of human trafficking, you think of like a big truck full of people. When in actuality, many times it can just be one individual who's in charge of one person. We actually have had stings over the years of individuals. We had brought in these guys. Okay, you're going to meet Susie at 11 o'clock. They show up at 11 o'clock in this room, snap them up. We had guys lined up all day long and arrested them all. I think we had 12. You look at some of the progressive district attorneys across America. Our cities are being destroyed by their lack of doing their job. Don't these DAs take an oath and say that they're supposed to uphold the laws and the Constitution? So how can they just pick and choose to not prosecute something? Excellent question. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. I... Hello, Tim Cruz. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for ha- coming on the podcast. Hunter and I are happy to have you on. Uh, we're, we're excited to get your unique perspective on like certain problems and issues that uh, Massachusetts is facing. Uh, and the reason I say unique perspective is that you are the district attorney of Plymouth County in Massachusetts, so right around America's hometown. Starting out here, can you just give us like a brief overview of your career? How'd you get into politics? And then also, can you kind of just explain, like, what is a district attorney? What does that look like for people who don't know? Sure. And I want to thank you guys for coming up here to Brockton today to have a conversation. And it's always good to get the word out Mm -hmm. as to what we do. Um, And, you know, I grew up up in West Bridgewater, a little town right next to Brockton. I went to... uh, Boston College, went to Suffolk Law School. When I was in Suffolk Law School, I became an intern in the Plymouth DA's office in 1983. And that's who I really got my foot in the door to try to figure out what I wanted to do because we didn't have shows like you have now, Law & Order, CSI. When I go out and I talk to people, they go, do you know what the DA does? And I kind of get that that vague look. Mm. They don't really know. And I'll always say, well, do you watch Law & Order? And they'll say, yeah, do you watch CSI? And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, it's nothing like that. <laughs> that that's television. That's right. commercial conviction is 60 minutes with, com- with commercials. You know, it's not, it's not the same thing. Uh, and my job is so very different. So I went to, I, I went to Suffolk Law, uh, graduated, became an assistant DA in 1985, worked here for four years um, as an assistant district attorney, worked my way up from all the district courts. We have four district courts. Brockton, Hingham, Plymouth, and Wareham. We have two superior courts, Plymouth and Brockton. And um, ended up doing what a lot of people do. They leave because, quite honestly, you don't make a lot of money working in the DA's office. Uh, I left. Uh, eventually was in private practice for about 10 years or so. And then something happened that I never thought was going to happen. Um, there was my old boss had passed away as district attorney in 1995, Bill O'Malley. And Mike Sullivan had been appointed by Governor well to take his spot as district attorney. Mike was there for six years. And then Mike was appointed by President Bush to become the United States attorney for Massachusetts. But he had a year left in his term. So they needed a Republican lawyer from Plymouth County to fill out that one-year term and subsequently run. Uh, There's a dearth of Republican lawyers virtually anywhere in Massachusetts. Uh, And so I was fortunate enough to work my way through that. And uh, Governor Swift was the governor at the time, and she appointed me Plymouth DA, and I had 364 days from the time I was appointed to my first election ever and learning politics the hard way. Wow. Uh, Getting out there, raising money, and being everywhere. And it was quite a learning experience. That's crazy. So uh, you mentioned you're a Republican, and you're actually the only Republican district attorney in the entire state of Massachusetts. What is that like? in terms of relationships with the other side of the aisle and then also other Republicans? Well, I mean, it, it, it's lonely. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, there's, 
Uh, when I first started out, there were three Republican DAs and one Betsy Scheibel retired from the Northwest District. And then for the last number of years, the district attorney on Cape Islands was Mike Loki, a friend of mine, and he retired last time. Uh, so right now I'm outnumbered 10 to 1, but the majority of the DAs that are there, uh, the district attorneys themselves, they understand what this is about, and it's really not about politics, and they understand that we have a responsibility in our community to try to keep people safe. We may not agree on how we're going to get there, but we agree that we all have that same goal. I just happen to think mine's, my way's right, and theirs is uh, convoluted. Let's put it that way. That's yeah. fair. You said you went up through the uh, attorney's offices and you interned and all these things. What, how do you keep the fire after all those years to keep doing the job and keep doing it and keep being involved? Like You've been in it for a while, so how do you keep that fire? Well, I mean, I think you have to love the job. I think that you have to love the area where you're from. This is where I'm from. This is not... I didn't just move here to run for DA. I didn't just show up all of a sudden. This is where I was born. This is where I was raised. And this is where I feel I have a responsibility to try to help the people in my community as best as I can. And I think we've been able to do that over the years. Um, you know, and I think that's why we've been successful politically. Mm-hmm. And I say we because it's not just one person. Mm-hmm. I may be, it may be my name. It may be my, my, my face. But we have a lot of really good people that work hard every day and make differences in people's lives. And I think that's what makes a difference. And that's why I've been successful. Yeah, I mean, just walking through here, it's like so many people here helping you uh, do your job. And that's a, it's a really cool thing to see actually, to see government at work in the right way. Um, that people, that we're, you're not just bureaucrats, you're elected by the people. And that's a, that's a really special thing to be able to, to, be able to see that. Uh, what are some of the main differences? You mentioned um, you and the Democrats, you have the similar goal, but you have different ways of going about it, obviously, different worldviews, different policies. What are some of like, the most um, blatantly obvious differences in policy between you and your Democrat colleagues? Well, I mean, like, and once again, I, I can't really group all of them together because there are some very conservative Democrats uh, that I rely on, and, and I can, they can rely on me, and I can rely on them, that we have, we understand we're going in the same path as, as each other. Uh, there were some a few years back, the, the progressive DAs, and they all began under the, you know, the George Soros push uh, a few years back, and they were coming in here, and they wanted to defund the police, they wanted to abolish prisons, they wanted to have no cash bail. Uh, it was insane. And more importantly, it doesn't work, and it hasn't worked anywhere. And when you look about you know, our country right now and you look at some of the uh, progressive district attorneys uh, across America, our cities are being destroyed by their lack of doing their job. Right. That's really what it comes down to. So you look at when I was my last campaign, people would say, you know, I had an ACLU, George Soros-funded individual against me. And I say, if you want to be San Francisco, if you want to be L.A., if you want to be Seattle, if you want to be Chicago, if you want to be Philly, if you want to be that area, then do not vote for me because of the fact that, you know, I have a responsibility to do my job. And my job is to help people. My job is also to understand that while we're dealing with the frailties of individuals in our world, drug I- issues, mental health issues, uh, that there are also some really bad people in the world, and they must be held accountable. Yeah, and I think you even look at like something like San Francisco. Xi Jinping came into San Francisco, and the whole city got cleaned up. Right. It was like it was the best time to travel there. People making all kinds of jokes, and I think that's such a testament to the fact that it can be done. It's just a matter of who is in office and who's actually enacting who's the, the motivating factor is it yeah. the people or are we working for foreign governments right. yeah. it's disappointing you know that i mean if you go to any of those major urban beautiful cities and where they are right now 
And quite honestly, you don't have to go that far to see it here. We've had it in Boston. You know, we had it at Mass and Cass and people living in tents. And what that, di- what that did was bring individuals to an area that was being inundated with crime, with human trafficking, with sexual abuse, with drug trafficking, with murders, with assaults. We live in the greatest country in the world. We should not be putting up with that. People should not be living in tents. And you have to understand that when you're dealing with a lot of the people that are on the streets right now, they have significant mental health issues. They have significant drug issues. And they don't want help. And we have to put ourselves in a position where we go back a little bit and help them because many of these people are a danger to themselves or the danger to somebody else. We need to help them. And there are ways to help them. And unfortunately, in many places, it's not being done. And it's almost like enabling them by having, you think that you're helping them by not uh, interfering and doing things, but they're actually hurting themselves. And if there's something that can be done, you're enabling them again by not, by not helping them. You're right. What is some of the biggest issues you bring up these things like, uh, like sex trafficking and these things that some people like don't talk about and you know, it's, it's coming to a, f- a front now. What are some of the biggest day-to-day issues that people don't talk about that you would want people to, to hear about? Well, I mean, there, there's so many of them. I, I think that, you know, nowadays, as b- being the DA now for in, the, in my 23rd year, uh, you know, these have been on call for 23 years. Uh, and when something terrible happens, I go. And we have, we're really lucky and fortunate to have a lot of good experienced people that work here. We have, you know, 20-some-odd troopers, that, state troopers that work for us because by statute, the district attorney and the medical examiner are in charge of all the homicides. That's why you'll always see me at a homicide scene, because I'll, I'll show up and work with the people, the, the local police and our state police, and try to come up with what's the best avenue to do our job, understanding that you have to look at it objectively, and that you have to go forward, and you can't, people often ask me, how can you go to those scenes, how can you look at those things? I said, this is the job, and this is what you have to do, and you have to look beyond that and work with the local police and the state police. Make sure your, your warrants are done correctly. Make sure your affidavits are done correctly. Have everybody looking at every nook and cranny. Dot all your I's, cross all your T's. Because three or four years from now, when that case goes to trial, and it will take that long, unfortunately, um, people are going to Monday morning quarterback you all day long. Right. You have a responsibility to the community to do the job, and that can be difficult sometimes. But... What people should know, what I always like to say is, is that we really do have really good people. Not, don't believe everything you see on TV, on the radios, all these things out there that you have a lot of prosecutors who are trying to put their thumb on the scales, they're counting guilty verdicts. We don't do that here. We're looking for the right answer. What is it? And how can we help the people that we can help? And now the, the DA's office is no longer what it used to be. When I started 40 years ago, you'd get a file, and in that file would be a police report. And that was it. Maybe the person's board of probation record, that'd be it. You didn't know anything about that person. Nowadays, we know more, we can find out more, and we can provide help for individuals through all the different programs that are going ongoing and trying to help kids who are drug-endangered, kids who have adverse childhood experiences, kids who are growing up without parents in their lives, kids who have just difficult and challenging times. And what I see part of my job is now, and when I didn't see it 40 years ago, is how can I help these kids stay out of the criminal justice system? That's criminal justice reform. How do we help them? How do you break cycles of child abuse? How do you break cycles of domestic violence? How do you help those kids? Because today's victims can very well be tomorrow's perpetrators. We have to do that. It's a smart way to go. How do you ride that line of being an elected official, obviously, and then you, so you've got elected officials, and then you've got the, uh, the community, 
and obviously they do two different jobs. They can work together, but they're two different institutions fundamentally. How do you ride the line of not interfering in a place that you shouldn't, but at the same time asserting the authority that you've been given in terms of helping to break cycles of, of abuse? Like you were saying, today's abuse victims are tomorrow's perpetrators sometimes. Well, I mean, because we have so many offshoots here in the office, whether it be our Children's Advocacy Center or our Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force, things such as that, that gives us an avenue into the community. Dealing with faith-based groups, dealing with legislators, dealing with judges, dealing with educators, dealing with all these different groups of people. And quite honestly, they get to know you. They see me. I go to our task force meetings all the time, myself and the sheriff. We run them. And people come and talk to us. And they don't look at me as the DA. They don't look at you know, Joe as the sheriff. They look at me as Tim and Joe. And they'll come right up to us and they'll talk to us. I don't want people calling me Mr. Cruz. I don't want people calling me Mr. District Attorney. My name's Tim. And you can come to me and you can talk to me. And, and I'll give you the answers that I basically can. I think by working in the community, we've made a significant difference. And we've watched our crime numbers go down. And the people that we can help, we've seen those numbers gone up. While at the same time, we've seen the number of people who are doing time down the Plymouth County Correction has gone down. So what does that show you? That shows you that the right people are in jail. And that you have to help those people because 99% of the people down in the House of Correction are coming back. So they have all sorts of great reentry programs down there for individuals helping them, you know, with education, with drug issues, with parenting skills, things that a lot of these guys, and it's all men down there, don't have. How do you help them come back and be uh, somebody in society that's going to do a good thing? And you're not going to be batting a 1,000. Nobody is. All you can do is do your best efforts. And at some point, you're going to see somebody somewhere, and they're going to say something. I saw, it happened to me at a drug court uh, event uh, a month ago. A guy came up to me and was talking to me. He was in the dock. He was charged with a crime, and he was trying to get my attention. And I was there for the graduation, and he, he started talking to me, and he apologized to me. And I said, why are you apologizing to me? Because you used to represent me 25 years ago when I was doing defense work. He goes, and I apologize to you because I didn't listen to you back then, and, and, and I have a chance now. And he goes, now I go, well, it's not too late. It's never too late to do the right thing. So get to court, get yourself clean, stay out of trouble, and hopefully you can, and you can have a life for yourself. That's that's a good, we've laid a good framework. How, we're going to get into some specific issues now. So such as uh, the fentanyl and the opioid crisis, um, it's all in the news. You see the headlines, you see the numbers. What is the extent of the issue in Plymouth County specifically, and what has your office done to combat it? You know, it's funny, I, I, I often go and talk at many different groups for a variety of things. I was speaking at a group last week, and, and a lot of the things I go and talk to, I'm trying to be apolitical, and I'm trying to talk about whatever the topic may be, scams or things such as that. And they started asking me, uh, this group of women asked me about guns and drugs, and I tried not to go down the path because I wasn't trying to get political. And they found, they were pushing me, and they found, I said, listen, how do, you, how do we make things change? How do we stop this? I said, you want to know how you stop this? You close the border, step one. You stop the bleeding. That's step one. You give us the laws to enforce against the individuals who are selling this poison on the streets. You give me a law that says, if you sell that drug and you kill somebody, I can charge you with homicide. If you do that, you're going to see people not really wanting to, wanting to come into your counties. Um, we, we do that already with a variety of different things, but the fentanyl crisis, which in, in, in fentanyl is an opiate. Fentanyl is a, a synthetic opiate. It's made in China. It's coming in from all over the place. We have fentanyl. We have carfentanyl. We have xylazine. We have all these drugs right now, all these problems, and we have people dying right in front of us. So how do we make sure that we're going to go after the individuals that are selling this poison? Uh, and I say to my guys, let's go. Let's get these individuals. Let's charge them as hot as we can so that they don't want to be here. I can't control what's happening in other counties. 
I know this, though, and, I, and I, when, when I hear these stories that people don't want to come to Plymouth County because of me and the way that we're doing things here, I know we're doing the right thing, yeah. and mm-hmm. we'll continue to do that. And I think, you know, as you go after these individuals who are selling these drugs, who are trying to make money, and I'm not talking about users. You know, users, many of these uh, users, are, you'll give them, you know, little five jumps of crack, because crack's back, too. Five jumps of crack, and they'll sell, they'll jack the price up, sell four, keep one because they're using it themselves. I'm talking about the people who are out there who are using these drugs uh, to get money in their pocket Mm -hmm. on the backs of people who have significant drug addictions. Once you get a taste, you never shake it, and you've ruined people's lives. And it's not just that person. You've thrown a pebble in the pond. You've got a ripple effect that's affecting families throughout our county, and you're also affecting children. You're affecting your own parents. If you're a user, we see, unfortunately, at all of our fatal, uh, majority of our fatal or non-fatal opiate overdoses, children are there. They're watching this stuff. And if their parents pass away or if their parents are incarcerated as a result of their conduct, that means the grandparents are taking care of those kids. When you get to be a grandparent, which is my age, you're no longer running kids chasing around the table. You're, you're an older person. You know, you're trying to relax in your years. I've seen so many and spoken to so many grandparents who don't know what to do and they're at their wit's end as to how can I take care of my grandchild, my own blood? How can I do that knowing that my child is either in custody, my child may have passed away, they don't have the resources for it? It's an incredible challenge. So we have to make sure that we go, like I said, go after the dealers and let people understand that the, pe- the vast majority of the people who are overdosing, whether it be fatally or non-fatally, you, in our county, the between the ages of 18 and 39, child-rearing numbers. So they've got kids. And there's a big ripple effect. How do you deal with that? Go after the bad guys, get the drugs off the street, put the bad guys in jail, and try to get resources to the people that you can, the kids who are drug-endangered, who are watching these terrible things go on in their lives through no fault of their own. Do you ever work with uh, churches in terms of connect, connecting with uh, local faith groups to help these kids that are um, that are experiencing these things, or is it does it generally go right to the foster care system if if there's no place for these kids? To well, go? we don't normally get involved in the placement of the children themselves. That's usually through DCF, the Department okay. of Children and Families. Okay. Uh, but we do deal with faith based dealing with our with our um, uh, Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force because there there is a lot of hope. Uh, with the faith-based groups. And as a matter of fact, Plymouth County Hope, which stemmed from East Bridgewater Hope, originally was premised at various churches and faith-based places around our county. And really what it, what it is is a place for people to go to get help, resources, information. And then there's still a big stigma out there about opiates and heroin and things such as that. People don't want to go get help, and they're embarrassed by it. Um, that's why we came up with Plymouth County Outreach, which is another whole program that I could talk about for a while. But um, you know, it's 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 really getting resources to people. You know, and through the faith base, like we have, you know, Pastor Jaley comes to our faith based. Uh, I mean, our, our Plymouth County Drug Abuse Task Force, and we know what's going on. And I've come to I've come to his church. I've spoken to his church before a number of times over the years. You know, and um, I, so has the sheriff. So have many people who are running for office, and you have an opportunity to talk to people about what's going on. You know, sometimes you may feel like you're removed from, you know, what's going on. I mean, I'm here in the city of Brockton, and the city of Brockton is different than the town of Plymouth. It's different than small, the smaller towns. It's different, but it's the same. Because if you talk to a parent or if you talk to a grandparent who's got a child that's been using those drugs, uh, the, the, the pain is the same. You know, so how do you help them? And, you know, many times I know I've gone out and, and people say, well, you know, Cruz, that's not what you do. That's not your job. You're, I'm a lawyer from Brockton. I'm not a social worker. I understand that. 
But many times they'll say, we're doing all these different things, all these different grants, all these working with these communities, the United Way of Plymouth County, you know, Family Resource Center here in Brockton, worked with Bamsey for years in our Children's Advocacy Center, getting money and getting grants and working together to help the people that need it the most. And that, I think by doing that, you can try to stop the flow into the system and deal with the people you have to deal with in the middle. And also, hopefully, be in a position that you're going to come out better on the other end and helping these uh, these kids stay away from the system. We just had an interview with Pastor Neil Eaton from New Hope Chapel sure. in Plymouth, and they have a Celebrate Recovery program that they opened up a couple years ago that a ton of people have been able to find freedom from uh, addictions and, and things of that nature, generally having to do with drugs. Um, so that's that's a great resource there. How does the illegal immigration affect both? Uh, the, the, the drug issue and and also other issues like human trafficking and uh, and uh, issues happening all across Plymouth County. I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, you have a lot of individuals who are being, um, especially here in the city. I mean, countywide, this is probably the it's the only urban portion of the of the county. And I know that as of last week, I think they had 168 families, migrant families, were here, and they also include children. And I know the school is stuffed with kids. Uh, and so it's affecting the schools, and it's affecting the ability of the schools to get quality education for kids. And it's also causing uh, fights over there, you know, fights. And also there's a, there's a language barrier. Um, and we have people who, in my opinion, are misinterpreting the right to shelter law here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which was for Massachusetts residents, and it specifically wasn't for individuals to come from outside the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in here. And what we're seeing as a result of that is a drain on the resources that belonged really to the citizens here of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and they're going elsewhere. I don't, you know, uh, want everybody to think uh, that I don't have a heart. But there's only so many resources. And when you are in a, in a state that has spent $900 million so far on migrants, where could that money have gone to? And the real thing that gets my attention is it's $900 million with no end in sight. You know, at some point, it's unsustainable. It does not work. And every other country in the world has borders. We have borders too, but unfortunately, we have a federal government who chooses to look the other way and not enforce the laws. I'm a lawyer. I'm a litigator. I'm the district attorney here in Plymouth County. I enforce the law. I don't write them. If I wanted to write them, I'd run for state rep, state senate. You know, I don't write the federal laws, or I'd run for Congress. Our Congress people need to do their jobs. And unfortunately here, we have not had that done in a long time. We have people banging heads on both sides of the fence. And how do you come to a resolution of that? But the difference being, though, you, just because you don't like a law doesn't mean you can ignore it. Because look where we are right now, when you have thousands and thousands of people crossing the border every day, and those individuals are coming across, and there's drugs coming across, there's disease coming across, there's individuals who you would normally not let come into your country because of their records. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of people that want to come here for the right reasons, and, 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 I, and I hope that at some point they can work their way legally through the system to get here. But just opening the doors doesn't work. And until we stop the bleeding and stop the border... We're never going to get in front of this, and it's going to cost everybody, especially young people like you. I'm, I'm closer to the end than the beginning, but it's going to affect you the rest of your lives, the way that this money is being needlessly spent on these individuals who are coming here uh, illegally, and that's just the truth of the matter. If you don't like the laws, change them. You can't ignore them. So what do you do in, in spite of that? Again, like you know your job, obviously, so... When you have these people that are up against you in, in the state and the decisions that they're making that are out of your control, 
what is your options? Like, what are you what are you looking through right now to deal with this in terms of not getting around the law, but also illegal means illegal. Illegal immigrant means you came here illegally and you broke a law. So how do you deal with those two sides of trying to enforce the law, but also dealing with, you know, the legislators who haven't done their job. And who in, aren't enforcing the law, yeah. basically. Yeah, I mean, you, you can talk to the legislators, obviously, and, and say what you think. And, and many times you have uh, overreaching, by, in my opinion, by certain courts. Uh, you know, like we just had the, uh, the Mattis decision just come down where they basically have expanded the life without parole is now unconstitutional at age 21. Yeah, I just saw really? that. You know, yeah, um, wow. and which affects here in our county 28 cases. Um, and, you know, and that's four unelected judges, because it was a four to three majority decision, who have made the determination to do that. Now, I agree with the dissent, obviously, the people that, that, were, that spoke against that, that wrote against that, that talked, that talked about there being an overreach, that this is really the decision-making process for the legislature, not the judiciary. It's a separation of powers issue. Uh, but, you know, we're dealing with that right now. And and talking to what, can you put the genie back in the bottle? Yeah, you know probably not. But people need to hear that this is what these unelected officials are doing. Do you realize that most states in the United States of America elect their judges, and their judges are accountable? The ju- mo- and uh, we have a lot of really good judges. We do, but there are some that are better than others, and there are some that think that th- because they became a judge that they have all the answers. Breaking news, they don't, <laughs> surprise, and so surprise. and so and so now we have to deal with the aftermath. So the families that I've been dealing with, who have lost their loved ones forever, and they're not coming back, and it doesn't matter what you do, they now, for the next for every five years, once the parole is set or until the person gets out, they'll have to relive the the most heinous thing in their lives, the death of somebody that they love in their family. And at the same time, they have to watch this individual come to the parole board up in Natick, go in front of five or six unelected people who are appointed, who will make the determination as to whether or not to release them back into the community because they better themselves in jail. And, you know, I'm glad, if they better themselves in jail, I'm glad of that. But that doesn't change what's happened. And it doesn't matter what their age is. And the decision-making process, they're talking about the formulation of the brain and that the brain doesn't become a formula until you're 25. So what does that mean? So right now you're at 21. Yeah, why 21? Yeah, because the, well, that's because you're baby-stepping it. Right. They went from 17 to 18, now 18 to 21. I'm guaranteeing you it's going to go to 25 at some point. And at some point, they want to get rid of life without parole. That's what this is about. And, you know, the biggest argument back 25 years ago when there was an argument for the death penalty, the biggest argument for the death penalty was that, uh, or against the death penalty was, well, we have life without parole. You don't have to worry. These people are never getting back out. Now they are getting out. Mm. And they're going back into the real world. And what does that say to the victims? You know, we live in a world now where the defendants have a lot of rights. I'm okay with that. You know, give them, give them the rights and things such as that. But the defendants are not the victims. Mm-hmm. The victims are unfortunately uh, invisible to a bunch of people. And we have people up up in Boston making decisions and really making these decisions that are affecting hundreds if not thousands of people every day. Yeah, well they're they're fueled by this this Marxist ideology that those defendants are actually the victims because 
the, the, the crimes that they committed weren't their fault because it was a result of their circumstances. Right. It was a result of this, the quote system that was oppressing them or whatever. So therefore we need to give them another chance because they're really good people. If you just give them the right opportunity, they'll, they'll turn it around. They'll, and I don't know um, where, where that line is between people using that ideology to get what they want and get power and people who actually believe it. I don't know where that line is. But in terms of uh, unelected bureaucrats, how do you see unelected bureaucrats like infer- interfering with your job specifically? Well, I mean, judges make the call on, on the cases. You know, we, just, we go in front of a judge, we have our pitch, the defense attorney has his pitch, the judge makes the decision. And they're, they're unelected. Um, you know, when you have these other groups and agencies that are unelected, they are appointed. And depending upon who's in charge at that time, you're going to get a whole different flavor of people that are there, with their beliefs, conservative versus liberal, things such as that. So you know going in, you know, where you stand, whether or not you're going to have a chance in, in these hearings or you're just going through the motions. I think that's frustrating. You know, I, I, I understand that there, there's a need to have appointments of, of, of some people, um, but uh, at, at the end of the day, I'm up for election every four years. If people don't like me, they can throw me out every four years. I am accountable for my actions. I can't just say I made a mistake and moved on. Do I make mistakes? Absolutely. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. You accept them, you deal with them as best as you can, and you move forward. However, don't think that somebody's not going to say that at my next election. You know, Cruz messed this up, Cruz messed that up, you know, and, and then you have to deal with that. They don't have that. And, you know, under the guise of, oh, because it would be affecting our ability to be impartial and this, that, the other thing. Like I said, more than 50% of the states elect their judges. Maybe that's something we should consider. Hmm. Going a little bit into the system more, doesn't the the Constitution say that um, criminal trials should have a jury? Like, what is up with, there's so many cases that, I don't know, like, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know how it works, but when I read the Constitution, it talks about having a jury, and I feel like there's a reason why they put that in there. Can you speak a little bit to that in terms of dealing with those kinds of cases? Well, I mean, you, virtually every criminal case, you have the right to a jury trial. You, the defendant, the de- and the defendant has the, show, the choice. I don't have a choice. You know, so they can go in front of either in district court or superior court. They can make the determination, I want to go in front of the judge, and the judge will be the, the finder of fact and the ruler of law and come up with a verdict him, him or herself. Or they can go in front of a six-person or a 12-person jury. Those individuals would make the determination as to the findings of fact, and then their job would be to take the facts as they find them, apply them to the laws instructed by the judge, and come up with their verdict. And verdict in Latin means to speak the truth. So in actuality, their job is to find the truth. But in their search for the truth, you know, they also have to apply certain burdens. The presumption of innocence, the burden of proof. We have the burden of proof. We have to prove each and every element of the crime charged beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's something we have in every case, and I'm okay with that. That's the way it's always been. You know? uh, but I, I think that uh, those people, the defendants have the right to make that choice, and that's why you're going to see some cases there'll be a judge, and in some cases there'll be a jury. And many times the people that know, the trial lawyers, and I was a defense lawyer for 12 years, you know, I know who I want to go jury waiting in front of, and I know who I don't want to go jury waiting in front of. You know, I'd rather go to the jury from. So the, the inside game is that people know on the inside who would be an advantageous way to, to do your job, because really the job of the defense attorney is not to get to a just result. It's to effectively and zealously represent your client within the, the, the boundaries of the law, and that's a different rule from what I have. My role is to get to a just result and also to play by the rules. And many times when you see something that occurs, whether it be uh, a tr- you may hear a trial going on, and like I always say, well, people will hear the, the facts going in, and I wish I could say to them, well, that's only you know, 50% because we couldn't get the other stuff in. I tried a case years ago, just a drunk driving case. 
uh, down a Wareham six person. And I was, a, I was a prosecutor, and the jury went out. Jury came back in, like, in five minutes. And they said, why didn't the Commonwealth at, uh, allow the defendant to take the breathalyzer? And I said to the judge, I go, judge, you got to tell him. You got to tell him that we offered the breathalyzer, and it was refused. And, and we can't talk about breathalyzers. And the judge correctly said to me, he goes, you know I can't say that. I'm going to tell them they have to make their decision based upon the facts, which he, he was right, based upon our case law. Jury went back out. They didn't get an answer. They came back five minutes later. They find the guy not guilty. Then they're all looking for me to tell me I screwed up. And I said, I didn't screw up. I can't mention the word breathalyzer because if I do, it's a mistrial because there's all sorts of Fifth Amendment implications with the breathalyzer. So you, you have things like that, which whereby we're not allowed to talk about certain things because there's been preliminary rulings made that somebody did something wrong. There was something wrong with the affidavit. There was some, uh, something occurred that was going to suppress the confession. It's going to suppress the, the hide of drugs that you find in the car, you know, things like that. And those are the things you have to deal with all throughout the case, and it whittles away at your case. So that a case that may have been a home run to start with, by the time it's going to trial, you're lucky if you're going to get a single. It's almost like playing a game. In, in a way, is that is that fair? Except it's a very serious game, yeah. and, and you're and you're and you're dealing with people who are a lot of them, especially in superior court, who are dangerous individuals who have firearms, who have guns, and they're not afraid to use them, and they're sending bad messages to people. You know, we cannot allow to live in a society individuals who are just going around shooting up homes, shooting at people. You can't let that happen. This is broken win broken windows works. Have you ever heard that 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 theory from years and years ago? You know, if a window is broken, you fix it immediately so that people understand you're not going to idly sit by and let that occur. If you enforce the laws, even the lower level laws, you make a difference. That's why some of these progressive DAs, when they said, "Oh, there's seven laws, seven laws, I'm not going to prosecute," I'm not going to. And one of them was B with intent to distribute class, the possession of class B with intent to distribute, which is cocaine. It's a distribution charge. What are you talking about? You're not going to enforce it. How does that work? Because if people are allowed to just walk away, what's going to stop it from later on? How does that stop national retail you know, criminal organizations going on right now where they walk into stores and they steal everything? Yeah. Yeah. That, and you had 14 Walgreens shut down in San Francisco. All up and down the coast is just horrific thefts going on so they can't survive. And the businesses just write it off. We're actually doing, one of our things we're doing here is that we met last week, we had our first meeting with many of the corporate uh, entities here in our county uh, dealing with a, a retail crime organization, trying to make sure we can try to work together because it's outside of our jurisdiction. It's inside our county, but it's also outside our county. But these, these groups of individu individuals come and steal collectively. They'll walk in 14 people. I know one of the DAs was telling me they walk up in uh, the North Shore. They had those Canadian goose jackets, which are very expensive. Yeah. 14, 15 people walk in, put the coats on, they walk out the door. And <laughs> oh, you, my and, and, and they don't go after them. <laughs> wow. You know, or they'll walk into Staples. And the bad guys, no, they're not stupid. They're not stealing For pencils. Sure. And they're not yeah. stealing big pens. They go right to the laptops. And they understand that some of these entities have a rule that nobody's to chase them. So they walk in and they walk out the door. So that when they do get prosecuted, they can't believe it. Oh my gosh! You kidding me? Why, why am I getting prosecuted? You know, Suffolk County said they weren't going to prosecute you up there, and my response is, go to Suffolk County. But when you come down to Plymouth, we're going to prosecute you because you're stealing. It's yeah. not yours. It's basic thinking. It's basic concepts. And and I think when you do that, uh, people understand that. And I think that's why you know over the years we've been successful because people want to be safe. You know, they can say what they want. They can talk about it. Uh, uh, they they want, they believe all these 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 opinions and uh, words that are out there regarding, oh, yeah, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. The truth of the matter is, is you need to have somebody there that's going to, yes, help people when they can help them. 
but hold the people accountable and make sure that when you when you do that, you let them know that and you put it in the newspaper and you put it in Instagram and you put it in Twitter so that they know. Yeah. And then they don't want to come here because that's part of my job. I don't want criminals and bad guys here. And if you come and if you choose to do that, we will prosecute you and we will put you where you belong, down with the, down the jail. Don't these DAs, don't they take an oath and say that they're supposed to uphold the laws and the Constitution? So how can they just pick and choose to not prosecute something? Excellent question. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I've said that for years. Uh, you know, I, you, I'm not allowed to pick and choose. You know, I mean, I, I may not like all the laws, but I enforce them. You know, and every case is different. And don't, I mean, maybe a young kid did something stupid. We have diversion programs. You know, they don't get arraigned. Therefore, they don't get a criminal offender record. So when they go forward, it doesn't affect their ability to get jobs. It doesn't affect their ability to go to college. All those things like that. You don't want to hurt people and, and when they're moving on, beginning with their lives. You want to help them to the extent that you can. But you also have to make sure that if they're doing it continuously, they forfeited that right. And it, they didn't forfeit it because of the fact the way they grew up. They forfeited it because of the way that they chose to behave. Right. Yeah. People don't want to accept that they, they make decisions. You know, we're here on this earth and we make decisions. And we live with the consequences of those decisions. When you're young, you make stupid mistakes. And I understand that. We should help those people so it doesn't happen again. But if somebody walked up to somebody and murdered somebody, you make that mistake once. Because now you go to jail because of the fact there's nothing you can ever do your entire life that's going to change and bring that person back. He's gone or she's gone, and it's affected hundreds of people. And you take someone's life, you give up your right to life. That's just how it works, and we can say all these other things. And we, the other issues need to be the other issues. Like We can say whatever's wrong about the system, what's ever wrong about the situations that they're in. But at the end of the day, like you said, they chose to make that decision. We can't just say... We're not going to prosecute. Well, them. you know, it's it's so hypocritical to some extent. Like they're talking about the, these these emerging adults, and 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 you know that that they've gone from seventeen to eighteen. Now they're up to twenty, but at the same time, where they say that your brain's not formulated, maybe up to twenty five, they want to lower the voting age to sixteen. Which is it? It doesn't. Work. You don't get it both. You don't get to to get informed with a sixteen year old voter who you know, is still chewing gum versus somebody who's 25 years of age. There's a big difference. You can vote when you're 18. You can join the military when you're 18. You can drink when you're 21. I don't know where these numbers come from. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're, they're, but, but to say that everybody gets an arbitrary bright line so that if they're 20 years and 364 days, and that, that kid that day can't be prosecuted or can't get life without parole, but the very next day he could? How does that make any sense? And in every trial that we do deal with, we have to deal with the appropriate state of mind, the mens rea, as they say in Latin. And so therefore we have to prove that. Was it intentional? Was it deliberate? You have to look at the entire fact pattern. And trust me as I'm sitting here, any defense attorney worth his salt or his or her salt is going to put in stuff about their background. They're going to put in stuff about drug issues, mental health issues, the fact that they may have certain things in their lives in order to try to diminish capacity because they were under the influence of something because they're going to try to knock away the intent from the first degree. If they knock away the intent, it knocks you down to second degree, which is life with parole. That's, in my opinion, that's a question for the trier of fact. That's, that's a question for the jury. Right. Let them make the call. Right. You know, if they say that, so be it. You know, but, but for us to say we're going to take an arbitrary bright line and say this is the line for now until some other academic somewhere else comes forward with something else and we're going to move the line another five years and we're going to destroy more people's lives as a result of that, that's wrong. Yeah, and that it's going to continue to happen unless we have more Republicans like yourself who are actually willing to enforce the law. And it's so sad that 
um, it's, so, it's so sad that personal responsibility is now a political thing. It's now a right-wing thing right. to take responsibility for your actions. And it's ridiculous. I mean, you ask, you ask any parent, like, did, oh, did your, did your kids know right from wrong at 21 years old or as soon as they started walking? No, it's like when they were very young, they, they, they went for the cookie jar. And then when you gave them that look, like they knew they were wrong. It's like we all have an internal moral compass. It's not at 21 and 364 days. You know, it's at it's 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 on our hearts because yeah. we all have a sin nature. And that's why the family is so important for the family to government. And we, we talk about politics all the time, but like that's a cultural thing is that the families have to step up. We need good, strong families. We need to encourage good, strong families, because like you said, if, if they know from the day that they walk that stealing is wrong, that murdering another person is wrong they're not going to do that when they're 21 because that's just not an option. So, I mean, that's just another issue. That, that's something that's almost out of your but you know, But you but. know what, though? But we're kind of pulled into it because of the fact that, you know, you see, especially during COVID, you know, you see and you feel bad for these young kids who are coming from broken homes, these kids who are coming to school hungry every day, you know, whether they be, they be babies, you know, they're five, six years old and they're hungry. A lot of these kids during COVID, they weren't going to school anymore. They weren't getting breakfast. They weren't getting lunch. You know, and now with all that, the social issues that have, have arisen as a result of COVID, uh, you know, how do you help those kids? How do we put themselves in a position where they can straighten their lives out? Can we do that, you know, can, for these group of kids? I don't know, but, you know, we continue to make, do what we can do. And I do many things, which many groups have asked me, you know, why, why are you doing this? This is not your job. And I will say to them, because I'll usually talk into a state agency, I go, I agree with you. It's not my job. It's your job. But I don't appreciate the way you critique the way that I do your job. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> what do they say to you when you say something like that? <laughs> How much? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. In conservative circles, there's a specific issue that seems to come up a lot, and we've been touching on a little bit, but I want to ask about it, um, is the issue of, uh, I think you said cashless bail. Was that what you called it? No, no cash no, bail. No cash yeah. bail. Um, and it's across the country, and it's generally happening in these urban, you know, these urban cities with um, uh, Soros-funded DAs and their their idea is like, all right, let's just let all the criminals out, like very little to no cash bail. And yeah, I know, like, how, how's that working? And, and then you have this awful example of, you know, Sean Gannon in Yarmouth going to a guy's house. There's a warrant out for his arrest. He should have been in jail, but he was out on bail and then he gets shot dead. And that's just one example, but it's across the country. In some states, actually, like in New York, for instance, I was talking to some of my fellow DAs in New York. Uh, they actually changed the laws there a couple of years ago regarding the, the cash bail situation, which basically meant by statute people were walking out the door. Unless you killed somebody or significantly hurt them, you were not going to be held. And these people are going out, and they recidivate. They immediately commit something else. And, and why wouldn't you? Because there's no accountability. You know, so now we had DAs that they believe they don't believe in cash bail. Cash bail works. You know, it makes sure that people are going to show up for court, uh, and whether or not they have to have, be on a GPS monitor, which sometimes is, you know, uh, to me, I'd rather have them in jail because the GPS they cut them off, and there's no additional penalty for that other than malicious injury of property, which is a misdemeanor. You know, we were trying to get for years uh, a law passed that so made that a felony, so we could have some more teeth in it. Uh, but you also have individuals who get the GPS monitoring, and they'll say it doesn't work. And they'll go to court, and they'll say, oh, it hasn't worked for 20 times. Really? Well, then go to jail. Cause that's, then I know where you're at. The purpose of the bill is to show up in court and also to make sure that you're going you're gonna to show up and that you have some skin in the game, so to speak. And then we're also dealing with these agencies who are showing up, putting up bail for them. 
you know, the, the, these groups, these agencies that didn't believe that uh, we should have people in jail at all. So they would come up with 10000 cash, $20,000 cash. And, of course, we had a case here where a woman uh, was uh, being held on a manslaughter charge, and she, she made bail, uh, and she went out, and she immediately got into another beef with more people. Mm. Bail is always a, a challenge because, uh, you know, you, nobody's got a crystal ball. Nobody knows what's going to happen. You know, you have, you have you do the best that you can based on somebody's record and the way that they've performed in the community and what the case is itself, the underlying case. Uh, but you're, you're dealing with people who are recidivists who are coming back and forth into the criminal justice system. You know, one of our biggest problems is people say to me, how do you have a case where you have one, a guy? He's got three pending gun cases. How the heck is that guy not held? I'll tell you how he's not held. He gets arrested and gets brought to court. Say he's got no record. Say they set bail $500 cash. He makes $500 bail. He's out the door. Um, and uh, now he's out again. He gets arrested in the middle of the night. He's got another gun. So what happens in the middle of the night, a clerk shows up, and that clerk, his fee is contingent upon whether or not this guy makes bail. So the question doesn't become, what is the appropriate amount of bail? The question is, how much you got? Mm. And, then, and then that guy will come up, whatever the money is, and then the next day, that guy will show up in court. And we will move to revoke his bail in the first gun case because he violated it by having a new gun charge. And the judge will say, most times, the judge will say, well, you know, bail is a purpose of making sure you're going to show up in court. And here he is. He paid the bill last night, $500 more. Keep it the same. And the guy goes back out again. You know, so it's, it's a cyclical event that goes on many times in various courts. Uh, and that's, I think, the frustration. I think it's a frustration with the police officers. It's a frustration with, you know, people in my office sometimes. And, and like I said, there's so many cases. I mean, pre-COVID, we had anywhere between eighteen and 20,000 criminal cases a year in wow. Plymouth wow. County. You know, we have 60 lawyers, you know, in all those different spots. And, and now the numbers are down, not because crime's down per se, but the number of arrests are down. There's less police officers, quite honestly. The whole defund the police thing, uh, it, it took a lot, of, a lot of steam out of people. Mm. You know, and it took, it's very difficult now for people to make that challenging decision. Do you want to go and risk your life uh, potentially on a daily basis for people who are going to call you every name in the book and are going to accuse you of everything? Yeah, and that's why we, the importance when you talk about all these issues, it really comes down to holding our elected officials accountable for what they were they're doing, like cashless bail and all these things. Like they're the ones who are allowing these DAs who don't enforce the law that are on the books they're the ones who are allowing this to happen. The legislators who don't give you the laws that you need to do the job to things that are already illegal. Illegal immigration is already illegal. It's already illegal to sell drugs. All these things that we know that are ridiculous, that we the people, and that's why we have this podcast, is we need to be involved with the process. Like We, we pay attention too much. Like We don't pay attention enough. We see this police officer get killed, and we go, oh, that's sad. But you, we don't know all the things that led up to this happening. So I would say this is just an encouragement to the audience that – we need to get involved. We need to know these stories. You need to watch more of our podcast so you can know <laughs> about all these issues that are going on. And uh, yeah, that's just my pitch. <laughs> uh, transitioning here, I want to I get into the issue of human trafficking. Recently, there was a culturally iconic film, Sound of Freedom, that came out that I thought was an incredible, it was an incredible film. Um, and it documented the true story of Tim Ballard and how he uh, went essentially went into a jungle. I can't remember what country it was, but he Jim went. Jim Caviezel. Okay. Yeah, sorry, too. Jim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he went in, and he and he saved this girl from who had been sex trafficked, uh, and then now he's doing running this organization, doing that all around the world, working with the governments, and that's really highlighted uh, the issue here in America, and you've got people who don't normally 
don't normally uh, think about it or like they just go about their day-to-day lives and those things are going on behind the scenes. They're going on at night. They're, or sometimes they're going on in plain sight and you don't even realize it right. uh, because sex slavery can be like very in your face, but you don't, but you don't realize it. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, and, and there's also labor slavery too and servitudes in that fashion too. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, back, I think it was 2012 that the Massachusetts legislature put together some new laws for human trafficking and the penalties and things such as that. We started getting involved with it probably like in 2015, and the way we started was not quote-unquote human trafficking, but it's, we were dealing with commercial sexual exploitation of children, CSEC. And we were dealing that, with that through our CAC, our Children's Advocacy Center. And we saw cases coming in where we believed that thing was going on. So we ended up getting grants and things such as that. And we ended up doing trainings. We did trainings with police officers. We did trainings at the hospitals and dealing with people that, like you just said, some, they were looking at something, but they didn't know what they were looking at. Mm. And, you know, what are the signs that you can look at to make sure you can try to help these, usually younger kids, you know, and usually because when you think of uh, human trafficking, you think of stories like that story there with Tim Ballard, or you think of like a big uh, truck full of people. But in actuality, many times it can just be one individual who's in charge of one person, and basically they've done something to help that person get here, and they have them paying off a quote-unquote a debt, whether it be uh, for for monies to get back to the U.S., uh, whether it be through labor, whether it be sexual servitude, whatever it's going to be. And we end up seeing that, unfortunately, all too often. And we started out, you know, um, a few years ago, we had a handful of cases. After education and after trainings over the course of a year or two, we saw our numbers go up. I think it went from a very small number to like 156 as we were at wow. a couple of years back. And that's just Plymouth County. And when I was asked, I was at some event, somebody goes, is that, wow, it's really grown really quick. I said, no, it hasn't grown. It's the same thing. We're just People realizing. just know what to look for. Mm. And, and so we've had, you know, we were, the, we were the first county that had a, a successfully tried a human trafficking case here once that new law came down. We've had, I think, seven or eight convictions over the years of human trafficking cases. They're very difficult to prove. People don't want to come forward. These people are still, if they're, if they're out and about, if they, people aren't held on bail, that means they're back out in the community. And when people out in the community, you don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, and many times you say young individuals who don't want to be involved in the criminal justice system yeah. at all. Yeah. People are scared, especially if they're not legal. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've got you know, a whole program here, the U visas, dealing with people, giving them the right to stay here in the U.S. while we're prosecuting their cases. Mm-hmm. How can we help them? You know, because I don't want to look away from these things, whether it be a human trafficking, whether it be a murder. We had a murder a few years ago where a, uh, a man uh, murdered his girlfriend and her two-year-old son who was born here in the United States of America, dumped them in a dumpster, wrapped them up in... Uh, paper, threw them in a dumpster, and just by chance, he murdered them on a Thursday. On Sunday, the bodies were discovered, and the only reason they were discovered was because a guy was going through a dumpster looking for cans, and he found the bodies, and he called the police. And by the time we found out about, by the time we found the bodies, this guy was already flying out to Ecuador, Hmm. and back to his home country. And for Oh, gosh, it must have been three years. We're still trying to get him back here now. Really? You know, I, at the time, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Scott Brown was the U.S. Senator. And we were trying to get him back here through the Ecuadorian government because not only did he murder a woman and a, and a baby here in, in Brockton, which is, which is America, that baby was a U.S. citizen. So, you know, they, they didn't want to give us, give, give us back to him. Uh, and we, I dealt with her whole family gave them all U visas. They were all not here legally. They were scared. to. They didn't want to come meet with me. They were scared of meeting with Cruz, you know, because they were afraid I was going to deport them. 
I'm not going to deport them. I'm going to treat every victim the same, no matter what their status is, legal or illegal. I have a job to do. And I can't, many of them are essential witnesses to try to prove this case. So those people came, and we eventually worked it out that, you know, they, they stayed. But the bad news is, is that that guy is still somewhere in the, in the world, in Ecuador. We've had all these red alerts, uh, Interpol things sent out there, and we can never get him back here. And it was during, uh, I forget who the president was of Ecuador, but the only, it's a corrupt system over there. Uh, and, and the only way I could get their attention was try to be a rabble-rouser, so I would go out and kick the crap out of Ecuador's legal system every chance I got. And then they would, then, that, then the, the guy threatened to kill me. Uh, and, um, you know, it's funny. The funny joke is that they were, they were calling, the guy was calling me El Jefe, you know, the guy they were going to kill, El Jefe. And I, I was saying at one, one event I was speaking at, you go, you know what? I go, they, they can call me El Jefe. They go, but, you know, if they, when they want to kill me, that's one thing. But they don't have to call me fat. <laughs> and they, and they, the guy looks at me and goes, it means the, it means the boss. I said, oh, okay. I don't. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's, it's just, you know, one of those crazy things in which you're trying to do what you can do as best as you can, but you face challenges and obstacles, whether they be at a state level, a federal level, or an international level. That's one thing I've learned over the years is that, you know, whether it be dealing with that case, whether it be dealing with the Boston ISIS scandal, that's when I started, that thing came six months later. Uh, and, and all these different things that I've dealt with over the years. Um, you know, how do you do the best you can for the people in your community? How do you keep people safe? How do you let them know that you're going to be a voice and you're going to be the voice for people that don't have a voice, whether they be children or seniors or people who just can't deal with it. Uh, that's what I try to let people know. And that's why I like going on shows like yours, because I want people to understand. Now, this is not an election year for me. When I go out, I have to do all these elect election things, uh, and that's fine. But, you know, when I talk about you know, uh, judges being uh, non-elected, you know, so in some uh, states, the DAs are not elected. I was at an event when Chris Christie ran for president not this time, but last time. I was at an event with the DA from the Cape. And we went up to him. He was very nice. I never met him before. And I go, Governor Christie, I just want you to know that the entire Republican delegation of the Massachusetts DAs is coming here tonight to get our picture taken with you. He looks at me and goes, that's great. Let me know when they get here. I go, we're here. It's me and him. And, and he started laughing. <laughs> and he said, and he was governor at the time. He goes, well, he goes, that's different. He goes, down in Jersey, he goes, they're all Republicans. I said, how's that? He goes, he goes, I pick them. Mm. They're not. They're not elected. So in some states, they also get appointed. Connecticut's the same way. They pick states' attorneys. The governor does. So you see different. You'll see a different uh, mantra come in. How does that affect crime statistics? Is it better or worse? What do you think? I. I you know. I, I. It depends who the governor is. I think. You know what. That's what true. what yeah. they. What they want. I mean, not some of the, some of the Democrats. They're, they're they're not bad people. They're just they're just a little little going in the wrong direction. You know. I mean. Uh, most of them want, I, I think, to be safe. Most people, that's, and I think that's why we've been successful in such a blue state, you know, is that people don't want, don't, all this crazy stuff you see in the world, they want to know that there's somebody willing to get up and, and stand up for them and say something to them, and that if something unfortunately does happen, that it's not going to just walk away and let it happen again. You can't let that happen in a civilized world. And, and I think we've gotten away from that over the last five years. I think the pendulum is coming back a little bit. You know, I, I, and as somebody who's been through the middle of it for the last five years, it was a difficult and challenging time. Um, but I think it's coming back the right way because people want to be safe. They want to understand that their elected officials are there for them. And that's one thing I've always got. I'm always accessible. I go to, I've spoken to groups of two or less in places, you know, because people don't show up because I'm not that exciting. So, you know, when you show up and you talk and you have a conversation with people, 
uh, I think they understand that you're just a person like them. Yeah. And, but this is what I do. This is my job for the last 40 years. Have you dealt with um, sexual exploitation cases through social media of predators like uh, contacting young, yeah. young children? Yeah, we've been doing that for years, as a matter of fact. We actually have a, a program that we bring to schools called CyberSense to try to talk to kids about being careful online. And we do, we actually talk, it's usually fifth or sixth grade, and then we'll also do it for parents at night. Um, and one night we were doing them, uh, we had an undercover, usually the person that was reaching out was an undercover, either deputy sheriff or a trooper. And one night, we, one of our schools, we had uh, a big screen up there. We brought parents in that night and we tried to show to them how easy it was for predators to come after our kids. And what happens is, is that this young kid that she's self-proclaimed 12, 13 year old girl wandered into the wrong chat room. And most people in that chat room go, you're 12 years old, get out. You shouldn't be here. Some other people focus right on it. And those are the people that will then start targeting that person. You know, they'll have a co brief conversation. Can you go offline with me? Talk to me over here. Do you have a camera? Uh, can you send me a picture of yourself? Uh, and usually what you'll end up seeing is some inappropriate photos being sent to that kid. I remember in one of the schools we were at, we had an inappropriate photo up on the big just popped up there. The guy put it up there. Oh he didn't know what we were doing. And there were people that were horrified by it. So, but this happened like within two minutes of first meeting the child. So, you know, you end up seeing these individuals, these predators that are out there. So we actually have had stings over the years of individuals. We did one at the um, years back at the old How Howard Johnson's right on Route 3 in Kingston. Uh, it's not Howard Johnson's anymore. It's another name of a hotel. And, but it was empty at the time. And we had set up a whole thing over the weekend. And we had brought in these guys, show up, okay, you're going to meet uh, Susie at 11 o'clock. They show up at 11 o'clock to this room at this hotel, snap them up. We had guys lined up all day long and arrested them all. I think we had 12. Wow. You know? And it just goes to show you, and this is a long time ago. Right. You know, I mean, the internet has changed since then, yep. and, you know, and pornography has changed since then. Um, so it's very frightening as to how quickly it can change and they can go after our kids. And that's why our kids have to have a better awareness about mm -hmm. them as to what's out there and, and to understand that less is more on your Facebook or on your Instagram. Don't throw everything out there. Don't put your number. I'm number seven on the soccer team. Okay. Don't put that stuff out there. Don't get that information out there until parents the same way. You know, that you, your kids are not supposed to be on Facebook until they're 13 years of age. Many parents, unfortunately, in the world we live in today want to be their kids' friends. And I always would say when I'd speak to a group of parents, i go, I want to be my, my kids' friends, too, when they're 25. Goes, but up to that point, when they're 10 years old, they live in my house, they do what I say. Yeah, I think we need to start having a conversation about just outlawing pornography, period, anyway. Because if you think about it, just even just thinking about it logically, it's prostitution. You're just adding a camera. Like, there's been funny, funny bits about it, and it, but it's not really funny because you look at all so many consequences, like... It has harmful effects on young men. There's really no redeeming quality at all to it. I don't. I don't even understand why it, it's illegal. And you see, I'm sure you see it all day with the trafficking. Well, stuff. I just think it's. A, I, I just think it's, a, it's nowadays that's a First Amendment issue, and that unfortunately uh, that horse is out of the barn. You know, uh, as to as to what it is, it's been like that for years. I don't ever see that going back. But can you? Is there a way that we can eliminate and keep kids off of this stuff? You know, and to make sure that it's not accessible to them. Uh, and, and that's going to be a challenge. Yeah, and I think you even see some of these states, they've been pushing back against it, making laws, banning, like, hey, you need to confirm that this person's 18 to look right. at this website. And those adult websites are leaving those states. And it just shows they're showing their hands like it's so disgusting that they don't even care about these people. So if I was a legislator, <laughs> that's something that I would be bringing Maybe up. you should run. <laughs> You know, they're always they're always looking for a few good people, and that's and that's what I would say to anybody that's out there. You know, if you really want to get involved, you know, a, a 
run for office. And if you, if you run as a Republican, wear a helmet. Uh, and, and <laughs> Especially in Massachusetts. It, it, yeah. You know, I mean, it's the bluest of the blue, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that's because there's so many Republicans that are just spineless. But I mean, I like the old saying: one one strong leader can weak, uh, can strengthen the spine of many cowards. So it just it just takes one. Yeah, no, it, we we have we have a lot of good people here. You know, um, I, I just think that you know nowadays, especially. I mean, when I started out, there was no social media, there was none of this internet stuff. Like I said, uh, you know, it was just a different world. Everything was old school. You sent out mailers and you know, had wood signs that were made up from wood, uh, and and now everything is you can get things so quickly. And as we enter the world of, you know, artificial intelligence, who knows where, that, where that's going to lead. Um, you know, it's just, I, th- I think being in politics, if you weren't already in it, if I wasn't already in it, knowing what I know now, I think i think twice about it. But having said that, I have the greatest job. And that's why people ask me, why haven't you left? Why are you staying there? Why don't you make some money? You know, and, and I, my answer is kind of always the same. But, you know, I often think of, um, I've told this story before, Many times I went to uh, an event uh, in Plymouth four or five years ago, yeah. and I had to go to um, I had to be in Mattapoisett like in an hour, and you can't get from Plymouth to Mattapoisett in an hour. But I had to do what I got to do. I had to, hit the, I had to go from place to place. So I go from um, uh, I go to Plymouth down by the waterfront. I walk in, do what I got to do. I'm there 20 minutes, and I, I'm going outside, and it's pouring rain. I mean, it's pouring. And I don't mind a little rain, but I couldn't walk. I'd, I'd have been soaked because I had to go all the way to Mattapoisett. So I waited under the canopy where all the smokers are. You know, everybody's they're relegated to the outside. And, you know, I'm out there and uh, talk, make small talk to people. I'm waiting for it to die. And a young woman comes up to me, probably 35 or so. And she goes, you're Tim Cruz. And I said, yep, because I never know where that's going. And uh, she goes, I always vote for you. I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And then she said to me, do you remember me? And I usually can come up with a line that's when I don't remember you, but I actually didn't remember. She was so young. I said, no, I'm sorry. And she said, well, I'm not surprised. The last time I talked to you, I was six years old. And when she said that to me, I knew who she was. She was a little girl who had been hurt by a predator in 1985. And I tried the case with her and her friend. And um, we talked for a little while. And she was very nice. And I'm glad she, things worked out for her. Uh, and she said, you know, we were, when, when we were that small, we were little kids and they'd come to court and their parents would bring them to court. We'd show them where they were going to sit. We'd try to have them understand because they were so young. If I told you my shirt was blue, is that the truth or the lie? If I told you my shirt was white, is that the truth or a lie? Little things like that. Just, you know, being nice to them. And she goes, we were too young to understand what you were doing. And we never got a chance to say thank you. So, so I just want to say thank you to you. You know, so when people ask me, why do you do this job? You don't do it for the money. You don't do it because you're going to be on TV, because I have a face for radio anyway, so <laughs> you know, it doesn't really work. Um, you do it because you're doing the right thing, and you're going to get up every day and try. Do you have the wherewithal about you to go forward and get a group of people that, that are working for you to make sure that they can treat people the way they deserve to be treated, and at the same time, understand the pain that they're going through and how can you help them as best as you can. And, and that's what this job is about. And that's why I'm still here, I think. You know, I think, this, I think to some extent, you know, people understand that because I, I kind of wear it on my sleeve. This is what I do, and this is what it will be until the day that I'm no longer doing it. There's one issue I'm curious, pertaining to the human trafficking issue that I want you to comment on. So I'm sure you've heard about this, but Maine recently decriminalized 
prostitution for the sex worker. So for the one um, get providing the service, it's now uh, decriminalized. And there are even some Republican legislators in Maine who voted in favor of this bill. The argument for it was that if prostitution was decriminalized for the sex worker, those individuals uh, being exploited through human trafficking would then feel like safe and comfortable to come to law enforcement and let them know so then law enforcement can go after the, the human traffickers. Um, and they're, they're arguing that the bill argued that they did this in some Scandinavian countries and it, like like uh, rates of human trafficking went down or whatever. Uh, but I don't, as far as I can tell, I, there are no other states. I mean, maybe like Las, Las Vegas or whatever, but no, no other states that have done this. Um, what do you what do you think about this? Is this a, a good idea or is this just exacerbating the problem? I, I mean, I mean I, the devil's in the details with everything, first and foremost. I mean, first of all, down, down our way now, if we're dealing with a human trafficking thing, it's not our way anymore to really be prosecuting the women per se, but we still have on the books. We still have on the books prostitution because there are certain circumstances where you may have to use that. You know, so as to just saying a, a, a blank cut across, I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm not sure if I'm with that. But I, but I do understand the purposes of trying to get the, the women in and having a conversation with them. And it's, and it's generally women, you know, having them come in and have a conversation with them and telling them we're not going to prosecute you. But we need your help to get this to get this sort of break this cycle that's going on here. And I think that you know uh, when any there's a, any legislation that's out there, you know whether it sounds good or it sounds bad, uh, I always want to look at it because of the fact these usually it's not as bad as it sounds or it's not as good as it sounds. There's always something in the middle. And I think right now as we come up with um, things that are coming our way right now, whether it be the new gun legislation that's coming out soon yeah. or the uh, the safe neighborhood injections, which is coming our way, which will, which will be a disaster. Um, uh, and once again, they say, oh, it works over in Europe. Well, it doesn't really. You know, so, uh, you know, we're here. We're different. Uh, people often say that things are working elsewhere. Uh, and uh, show me. You know, because I even see up in Canada, they, they had decriminalized, decriminalized areas, uh, including in Vancouver. And if you go on, on YouTube and look at uh, Vancouver decriminalized drugs, it's devastating what you see there. Absolutely devastating, you know, and it's the destruction of people's lives. Yeah, I don't think anything's even really illegal in Canada anymore. <laughs> Honestly, they just... Well, you know, they, they, they just, as I understand it, in four of the provinces that had safe injection sites, they have um, they've gone back the other way now. They've gotten rid of them. So it ain't, so it's not working. Yeah. So as as we close up, is there any closing statements that you'd want people to know about the job that you're doing, about things that we might have brought up that... Just quick, you know, elevator pitch. That are that's something that's important to I'm you. I'm glad you brought up the gun bill. I, I man, I wish I remembered that. But that's, we we did a whole podcast with Toby Leary from Cape Gunworks. Yep. yep. And he just broke down the gun bill, and it and it did really well. So it's like it's definitely a hot button issue that people. Are yeah. Really no, it, it is. You know, and uh, being a supporter of the Second Amendment myself, and having three guns myself, three firearms myself, because you know, in in my job, my life's been threatened before. You know, the and, and I've never I've never never touched a gun until I was trying cases as an assistant DA about 40 years ago. I'm not a gun guy, but now I am. And I see what's out there, and I've talked to the people. I remember the Marshfield Rock Gun Club and dealing with individuals now about the gun charges that are coming our way. There are some things that will be good. I think we have to deal with ghost guns. I think we have to deal with some of the other issues that are going on. But going after law-abiding citizens is not the way to go. We have to go after crime, legal crime guns. You have to give us the penalties to put these bad guys in jail for a long time. And if you do, 
you watch the numbers continue to go down. We've got great laws in Massachusetts. We have the red flag law. You know, Lewiston, Maine had the yellow flag law. That didn't work. You know, they had that terrible event up there just a couple months back. Uh, and the differences in the laws make the difference. And right now I'm on the board of the National District Attorneys Association, and, you know, we're talking on a national basis as to what can we agree to because you've got people that are far left. You've got people who are far right. You've got people who are in the middle. How can we come up with what we can agree with whatever that is, and then work on the outside. So there's always going to be moving parts of legislation, which is a lot of what I do. Legislation, budgets. The things I don't do anymore is I don't try cases anymore. It's the worst part of my job. That was used to be the best part of being a trial lawyer is trying cases. Love doing it. Uh, but uh, I just don't have the time for it anymore. So all I can do is work with the people here, make sure we get the resources that we need, make sure people understand that we're working hard every day to keep them safe, and uh, we're going to continue to do that. Awesome. Thank you, Thank Tim you. Cruz, for uh, sitting down with us and, uh, and having this conversation. This would be very helpful. I would love to see more Tim Cruz's across the country. Uh, I mean, like, actually, we, we've got the political left going after people on the right, like, you know, Donald Trump, just DAs from Georgia or whatever, just making up these insane lawsuits against him with weird case law that's never been used before, manipulating right. it to mean something that it doesn't. It's good to see a Republican DA who's actually willing to fight and not and isn't just going along to get along. So thank you, Tim Cruz, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, uh, in the meantime, my name is Sam Mealy. My name is Hunter Young. And we are the, the Sons, Sons of Liberty. Liberty.